Hello, and welcome back to Wisconsin Law in Action, a podcast where we discuss new and forthcoming scholarship with University of Wisconsin Law School professors. I'm your host, Chris Turner, and my guest today is the Dean of the University of Wisconsin Law School, Dan Tokaji. Dean, to- Dean Tokaji is a leading expert on election law, having published over 50 law review articles, book chapters, and other scholarly works. Today, we'll be discussing two of his recent articles on free speech, the 2020 election, and the effect of misinformation on democracy. Thank you for joining the podcast today, Dean Tokaji. Well, thanks so much for having me, Chris, and for doing this podcast. It's really wonderful. Well, thank you. This is going to be a really wonderful, timely discussion of issues that we seem like we've never faced before, so I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. So we we usually start our podcast by asking about our guest's background, specifically their research and scholarly writing interests. How did you first become interested in election law? Yeah, I've been in interested in election law since even before I became a law professor back in 2003, although back then and in the years preceding it, I wasn't even aware that election law existed as a field. But really, since my law school days, I've been interested in law and its relationship to democracy. That includes laws regarding voting voting rights, freedom of speech, and all of the things that are necessary preconditions to have a well-functioning democracy. It also includes effective institutions uh, and uh, particularly courts that are able to channel disputes over how elections are conducted over what kinds of speech or association are permissible into a way that we can have our disagreements resolved peacefully. And that is ultimately the hallmark of any democracy, the ability to have disputes resolved in a way that is peaceful and and yet reflects the views of the citizenry as a whole. It seems especially recently that democracy was as written. Most people are like, it's just going to work and continue on as it is. But the election law, it shows that underneath there's a lot of stuff working to keep it functioning in a way that we have come to expect it to work. That's exactly right. What I often say is that democracy does not exist in a vacuum. It's a product of a set of basic norms upon which we have to have an agreement. That includes freedom of speech, as well as elections, in which the polity as a whole can participate without undue barriers to any particular group's ability to vote and have their votes counted. Um, And and if we don't have these things, if we're not able to protect constitutional rights, and importantly, if we don't have impartial institutions that are able to resolve our disagreements without political favoritism, well, then we're in a lot of trouble. And I, I do think we're at a moment in our history here in the United States, and in fact, around the world, including in other established democracies, where where the future of constitutional democracy is very much at risk. Um, Our institutions have proven strong enough to make it through this most recent election cycle, at least so far. Um, um, But um, I think we've all come to see the vulnerabilities in our democratic, small d democratic process to a greater extent than was the case before. Right. And one of those uh, pressing issues in here was falsehoods, especially during the election. And with that, let's turn to one of your newest publications that talks about falsehoods and uh, to a large extent. It's called Truth, Democracy and the Limits of Law, which was published in the summer of 2020 in the St. Louis University Law Journal. 
the what really gripped me was the introduction to this uh, article. It was just fascinating and drew me right in. <laughs> yeah, um, I was actually pretty proud of that. I have to say, even though I've been writing these articles, you know, a lot of your articles for decades now, um, it still gives me a real chill when I'm able to write something that resonates in a way that this really, I'm glad to hear it did for you. And it, and I really felt it as I was writing it, that this, you know, you've got to get that notion that you're saying something that's really meaningful. <laughs> Um, and, and um, you know, I, I talk about the importance of truth to our democracy. We, we often, of course, will disagree on what is or is not true. We often, of course, disagree on what the law is or should be. Um, but we have to have some basic agreement on the proposition that truth matters. And the pre premise of this article is that there are reasons to worry about whether that agreement on the basic proposition that truth matters is, is still alive and well today. And mind you, this was written before the 2020 general election and all the controversy about the result that, that arose. Um, I, I'm going to use a phrase that is perhaps unbecoming of a dean here, um, but it is drawn from the work of a philosopher, actually Princeton philosopher, Harry Frankfurt, who wrote a short book several years ago entitled On Bullshit, where, where he distinguishes between lies and what he calls bullshit. In Professor Frankfurt's view, lies are when you knowingly say something that you, you know to be false with the intent to deceive your audience. Bullshit, on the other hand, is where you simply don't care one way or the other about whether you're saying is true or false. Um, so your goal is not so much to deceive, but but you may have other motives like well, in our contemporary age in which social media is so dominant, maybe getting more clicks or likes or maybe winning an election or just getting more attention for yourself. Um, these are these are motives um, apart from persuading your audience of the truth of what you're saying. And Professor Frankfurt also points out that in some ways, uh, what he calls bullshit in his book of the, the, by that title are is more dangerous than lies because when you're lying, at least you have some reverence or belief shared belief with your audience on truth. Um, but but when you're not, when you're bullshitting, um, well, truth is just completely out the window. It is completely beside the point is that we've given up on any set of shared beliefs on what is true and false. And there's increasing reason to worry about um, truth going out the window. The, the way I think of it, and, and I'm going to put this in legal terms now, in terms beyond what Professor Frankfurt put it, um, you know, I, th I think of lying as knowingly saying what is false, um, whereas bullshit is reckless disregard for the truth, to borrow from the famous First Amendment case, New York Times versus Sullivan. And in New York Times versus Sullivan, Justice Brennan used that phrase, reckless disregard for the truth, what is commonly referred to as part of the actual malice stand, standard, um, to describe what people could, in fact, be penalized for saying, right? Defamation um, of public officials can be subject to civil or even 
criminal sanctions if it is knowingly false or made with reckless disregard for the truth. And, and I worry as much about reckless disregard for the truth, particularly in our political discourse these days, as I do about knowingly false statements that is lies. And the way the election laws are currently structured, they don't really offset the misinformation that has become more prevalent recently. Part of your article builds on works by Professor Richard Hassan, who has proposed several modifications to election law to offset the increased level of misinformation. What are your thoughts on these modifications and what other changes do you propose? Yeah, so uh, Professor Hassan is a very prominent election law scholar. He is the lead author and creator of the election law blog. He and I are also co-authors on um, our casebook, Election Law Cases and Materials, along with Dan Lowenstein and Nick Stephanopoulos. And so this piece in the St. Louis Law Review was was written as a response to a lecture that that he gave. Um, and I, by and large, you know, Professor Hassan and I agree uh, on, well, most things, but, but including, um, we're both very worried about the proliferation of false statements, including knowingly and recklessly false statements in our political discourse. And we also, I think, believe that election law can play some sort of constructive role in um, doing something to curb the proliferation of falsehoods in our political discourse. Um, and, and there are a number of things that I think we agree can be done. There are some prohibitions on false election speech that would fall within permissible boundaries under existing First Amendment doctrine. There's also truthful government speech that can be used as a means by which to counteract false statements, going with the basic First Amendment ideal that, that um, the best response to ideas we don't like is counter-speech. Um, there's truth in labeling requirements, um, requiring, for example, social media platforms to, to label statements that are false or misleading, as many social media outlets are doing now, uh, including the most prominent ones, even without any laws requiring them to do so. And that, I think, this is a favorable development since I wrote the article has actually picked up some in the months since then, and especially in the time since the November 2020 election took place. Um, there are disclosure requirements that can be adopted um, and, and limitations on spending to influence elections by foreign nationals and by foreign governments. And, and it's on the last one where I, I think there, there actually could be some constructive work done. You know, there's been a lot of talk about foreign speech um, or speech that, that comes from foreign nationals or foreign governments. Uh, Russia in the 2016 election was a culprit, and that's just not my opinion. I mean, there, there have been bipartisan findings by, for example, Senate committee concluding that there were strenuous efforts uh, sponsored by the Russian government to influence our election, which I'm not sure that they turned the election, but they certainly had some effect uh, whether or not there was any collusion with any campaign. Um, I'm I'm concerned about these efforts, and and I, I think a distinction should be drawn 
between foreign nationals, right? There are a lot of people who are not affiliated with any government who may say things that are not true. Well, that's one thing, but it's another thing when a foreign government is trying to undermine our democracy by spreading false statements or spreading information with reckless disregard or of its truth or, or falsity. And as I lay out in the article, I do think that there is more than ca that can be done to distinguish between speech by foreign nationals and foreign governments and, and good reason to, um, to, to um, be more concerned about the latter than the former, even though false speech by anyone, whether private or governmental, can have harmful effects. In one prescient sentence, you write, in an era of proliferating falsehoods, it is incumbent on the judiciary to defend the truth. Yeah. And so the recent court cases, which have been numerous and across several many states, seem to have shown that judiciary can still provide, as you put it, a yeah. hedge against the most egregious falsehoods. Were you surprised by the outcome of these election challenges? I was not, but I was heartened by it. And you've put your finger on something really important, Chris. This is actually something, I think, to celebrate. What I argued in the article is that courts can be beacons of truth and uh, can provide a stabilizing role in our democracy in a time of rampant falsehoods. Because a part of our value as lawyers, judges, legal academics is that we believe in evidence, right? You can't just say things without any basis to support them. You have to provide evidence in support of the factual allegations that you're making when you go to court. Um, and um, you have to provide reasoned analysis that is based upon precedent. These are core norms of our profession. And so I hoped in that article that courts would continue to play this stabilizing role in our democracy. And I was relieved and heartened in the t aftermath of the November 2020 election to see them doing just that, right? And I, I do think it's fair to say that there were more, there were more frivolous claims that were brought in this election, challenging the result in various states than we've seen in previous election cycles. Now, you know, in some sense, this is nothing completely new. We, we see frivolous election cases brought in every election cycle, along with some that have merit. But we saw a larger number in this election cycle. And sadly, they were fomented by repeated false statements made without any evidentiary basis by the losing presidential candidates and uh, some of his lawyers. Um, and I think that was most unfortunate, but, but we should credit our courts for um, sifting the wheat from the chaff and, and, and doing their job of finding out what really was true and what was not and rejecting those claims that were made without any real evidentiary basis. So yeah, I do think courts have an important role to play in sustaining our democracy and separating truth from falsity. And um, our courts, you know, and this includes justices across the ideological spectrum, from the most conservative to the most liberal, I, I think we have a lot to be proud of, right? This is one of our institutions that functioned very well in the most recent election cycle and, and really should 
give us confidence. I mean, you know, there are some areas, of course, where reasonable minds will disagree on whether there was enough evidence to support a particular claim. And, and that's that's always going to be the case. But I think by and large, our courts did well to find out what was true and what was not in the most recent election cycle. Speaking of false statements, your part, part three of your article focuses on free speech, another hot topic following the social media suspensions of President Trump's accounts. What, if any, limitations could be placed on free speech to curb misinformation? Well, let me first give a little bit of information about my background. I, I'm someone who believes deeply in freedom of speech and its importance to a well-functioning democracy. Um, um, that's not only because I've taught First Amendment law and have written about the First Amendment, but also because for many years before that, I was a civil rights and civil liberties lawyer where I brought many First Amendment cases always on the side of freedom of speech. So I wanna be very clear at the outset that I believe deeply in the basic values that animate the First Amendment. And, and, I, and at the top of the list are truth and democracy, right? The idea behind our First Amendment is that freedom of speech will allow us to decide what is true and what is not. That ultimately the truth will rise to the top and relatedly that it will allow us as citizens to do our jobs when we're voting, when we are exercising our own free speech rights, it'll allow us to function as effective participants in the democratic process. That free speech, in other words, allows democratic self-government to take place. So truth and democracy, these are values that are central to First Amendment laws. I think almost everyone who has thought about freedom of speech and freedom of association agrees. The problem is that if we look at our political discourse, boy, um, truth can often seem like it's in very short supply these days. And it's hard for anyone to argue that our democracy is functioning very well at the moment. I mean, some aspects are, as we just discussed, but but we see enormous polarization, even fragmentation within our democracy. It is very difficult for those on opposing sides to reach consensus. We see very high levels of what political scientists call effective polarization. That is, you know, people on either sides of the political aisle. It's not just that they disagree, but they look with disdain, even contempt on one another. More, more people, for example, say they wouldn't want their child marrying somebody who was of the opposite political party. These are very worrying signs in a democracy. And so, you know, the question I ask, and it's really a question, is whether our First Amendment doctrine can do better to serve the core values it's supposed to be serving, promoting truth in a well-functioning democracy, and um, I, I think there are things that we should be looking at. For example, um, over the years, over the decades, really, the general skepticism of what is called content discrimination, that is laws that target speech based upon its subject matter, uh, that's gotten more and more strict in a way that I think has kind of lost sight of the ultimate values of truth and democracy that animate or should animate 
First Amendment doctrine. It's almost become uh, a hard and fast rule that laws that discriminate based on content are subject to strict scrutiny. Now, of course, there are several areas that are exceptions. Incitement, something that we're talking about a lot now in the in the wake of the events on the date of the electoral count in the Capitol. Um, there's defamation, which I alluded to earlier. That's another area that's an exception to this general prohibition on content discrimination. There is There are two true threats. A commercial speech has historically been an area that is less protected, though not completely unprotected. Campaign contributions, another area that is historically less protected, but again, not completely unprotected. So one of the things I suggest in my article is that we should think a little bit more deeply about this blanket prohibition um, or what has become almost a blanket prohibition on content discrimination. I think we also need to look at the values on the other side. What I tell my students when I teach First Amendment law is that, you know, you all probably believe that, that you value free speech. But if you really value free speech, if you really value the First Amendment, it makes it means taking seriously the values that are on the other side of the equation, including safety and security, including the harm to people's reputations that is sometimes done by false speech, including the harm to our democracy that can be done when those with a lot of resources are able to flood the market with their own speech and those without a lot of resources are left, relatively speaking, without a voice. We need to take seriously these values on the other side as well. And, and so, you know, I'm not suggesting an abandonment of our existing First Amendment doctrine by any stretch, but I do think it's important for us to rethink it with these core values of truth and democracy in mind in a way that, to be frank, recent First Amendment jurisprudence, especially cases from the Supreme Court, have not consistently done. A term you just used is harm to democracy, a time when free speech might be harming the tenants within democracy, such as voting or elections or what have you. Can you expand on the legal history behind this phrase and where it might have come about? If you look back to the earliest First Amendment cases, cases involving incitement, for example, including opinions by the great, and he was great, Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, you'll see that there is a recognition that um, there have to be some limits on speech, right? And um, where speech is directed to inciting imminent harm, right? That speech can be regulated and that includes imminent harm to the democratic process. Uh, for example, stopping the counting of electoral votes from taking place. Uh, it's a pretty high standard uh, you, that you have to show, that the government has to show in order to punish speech on the ground that it's incitement. But there are some circumstances in which democracy can be protected by limiting or, after the fact, punishing certain kinds of very harmful speech. So, you know, I, I do, along with a lot of First Amendment scholars, worry about unduly expanding this, right? I, I think there is a danger in our our First Amendment jurisprudence over the past century even more recognizes that, you know, it's, it's not enough to just make a claim that speech is harmful to democracy. That standard would be very much in the eye of the beholder and I think quite dangerous to freedom of speech. But there may be circumstances um, in which um, anti-democratic speech, speech that can 
undermine or threaten democracy itself may be prescribed. Um, other countries recognize this actually to a greater extent than we do in allowing so-called hate speech to be prescribed. And I'm not advocating that we go as far as other countries have done in allowing hate speech to be prohibited or even criminalized. But I do think the time has come for us to consider the appropriate boundaries uh, for anti-democratic speech. That is speech that is designed to undermine democracy. If we wanna go way back, uh, one of Hitler's closest allies, Joseph Goebbels, talked about how the National Socialist Party, the Nazis, were able to turn the tools of democracy against itself. And I do think we have to be wary of that. We have to be wary about um, foes of democracy, those are, who are designed to undermine or even destroy democracy. Um, using the tools of a free country in order to um, fulfill their sinister goals. And, and there are people and entities out there who have the objective of undermining our democracy. Um, we've seen that most recently with the storming of the Capitol. And while, you know, you can say after the fact, okay, there was never any really serious threat to the election, it was a direct attack on the citadel of our democracy that did for several hours at least, disrupt this sacred ritual of counting our electoral votes. So I don't think it is something that we can simply ignore. And there are circumstances in which anti-democratic speech may be prescribed, albeit very narrow circumstances. It's a very deep well of free speech discussion. And I think we could go on for a couple hours discussing this yeah. if you'd like to, but I guess for the podcast purpose, we'll keep on moving on. <laughs> Uh, the one, but one more part in your article that you wrote is that was very fascinating to me is the term post-truth world, one yeah. that you find uh, inappropriate and wanting in many ways. Why is this phrase not accurate to describe the world we are currently inhabiting? I, I, I think it's dangerous to talk about the post a post-truth world because it concedes that we can no longer reach agreement on what is true and what is not. And if we make that concession, then democracy truly is lost. As uh, Yale historian uh, Timothy Snyder has written, post-truth is pre-fascist. And I'm not willing to make that concession. I think we would all do well to avoid using the term post-truth world. The world is not post-truth now after Trump any more than it was post-racial after the election of President Obama. It seems that people are using this phrase in a way to kind of wrap things up in a neat package or to try to say this is what's happening and that's it, which I think it, it's simplifying things in a very dangerous way. Yeah, I, I agree. And I words have consequences. The, 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 the language we use to describe things matters. And I, I think it is very dangerous to talk about the post-truth world. We really give the game away to those who are trying to obliterate the distinction between truth and falsity, including those who have the objective of weakening our democracy. So in combating falsehoods, what are the first necessary steps? How can lawyers, law students, really anyone interested in democracy help combat this fall, these falsehoods? Uh, it's a great question. I, I think lawyers have an essential role to play in this process. 
not only because our core values include a commitment to evidence and finding out what is true and what is not, but because we have great skills as lawyers, oral advocacy skills, skills in writing. We're able to make arguments in a way that will per persuade our fellow citizens, and it's incumbent upon us as law students, lawyers, law professors to be leaders and to lead us forward regardless of our ideological predilections, you know, and, and I don't think this is a liberal or conservative issue at all. I think all of us who are lawyers share this commitment to truth, although we may not always exercise it or, or fulfill it. And we have to be outspoken in insisting upon the truth, as, as many lawyers, including members of Congress of both parties, have been in the wake of the 2020 election. Speaking of the 2020 election, let's turn to your other recent publication. Uh, it's a symposium contribution that was posted to Professor Hassan's election law blog, and it's titled Hashtag Two Days Out, 10 Things to Watch For On and After Election Day. So obviously this was posted two days before Election Day. What are the 10 areas you discussed there do you feel has been most important for election law mo experts to monitor? Yeah, this is really just it was, it was this this piece is really nothing more than a blog post, uh, but but um, it, it lays out things that each of them deserve much more extended discussion. And some of them I have discussed at length in other places, but I just wanted to kind of get out there right before the election, the things that people had their eye on, many of which actually came to pass. Um, the first was disinformation, uh, falsity in our electoral process, which we, we've been talking about and, and, and certainly was a big issue in the days and weeks following the election, where there was a proliferation of false information about what actually happened, including exaggeration about voter fraud, which is one of the, the worries that I expressed in that blog post. There were certainly registration issues, which I was very worried about before the election. Um, I do think that there's a, the br a bright side here, which is that turnout on both sides was really fantastic in the 2020 election. But there were a large number of provisional ballots in many states. Didn't really become a serious issue because uh, the, the provisional ballots weren't significant enough to affect the result, or at least they were, they were able to be counted in a relatively timely way. But I do think that this is something we should have our eye on for the future. Last-minute directives from secretaries of state, another thing I was worried about. We saw some of this in the primary election in 2020 from both Republican and Democratic secretaries of state, including in my former state of Ohio and, and here in Wisconsin. Uh, fortunately, we didn't see a lot of that in this election cycle, nor did we see a lot of conflict at the polls. You know, there were a lot of worries, as there are in every election season, that we're going to have conflict. Um, you know, could include people with firearms, intimidating voters at or near polling places, very little, if any, of that in this cycle. Um, poll workers, I was kind of worried about poll workers in this election cycle. Um, and, you know, there are always some snafus that, that occur here and there, uh, long lines at the polling place, voting machines that break or, or polling places that, that open late. But fortunately, we didn't see too many of that. And I think that's in large part thanks to a lot of people stepping up to volunteer as poll workers. Counting of absentee ballots, well, we know this did take a long time in some states, right? And uh, we had a lot more absentee ballots and as well as early votes that were cast in this election cycle as compared to previous election cycles. People did that because they were 
by and large, or many of them at least, worried about the pandemic. Um, but, you know, they all did get counted, or at least the vast majority of them got countered in the end. Canvases and recounts, you know, these things take time. We learned that, right? Uh, the results are not official on election night. There's a process that takes place afterwards during which the vote count can change as it did in many states. In some cases, there were swings back and forth. Um, but, you know, I, it was uh, it's, it was good, I think, that we went into the November election knowing that we might not have a clear result on election night, at least not in every state, and we didn't. U.S. Supreme Court intervention, we can be very happy that we didn't have that in this election cycle. That was uh, one of the things I was worried about, and thankfully it wasn't close enough uh, for the Supreme Court to ha have to make a decision that wound up deciding the election, as was the case back in 2000. Acceptance of the results. Well, we saw that, that the losing side did not accept the results uh, gracefully. Um, and, um, you know, our institutions were strong enough to handle it, but it's a, it's a worry going, going forward uh, when we now have this precedent of the losing candidate not conceding. And finally, post-election pandemic sites, we certainly spikes we have we certainly have seen some of that we've, we've seen in some places i was uh, it's hard to know the extent to which it was because of people going to the polls on election day but there certainly have been a number of places after the election where the number of covid cases did spike um in, perhaps in part because people weren't observing the precautions they should have so you know, we've we've got there are a lot of things to worry about, and and in the wake of the election, we've seen some other ones. Um, but I, I do want to tell a positive story after going through all the all the problems. And the positive story is, on the whole, our election system, despite a really unprecedented election where far more people were voting uh, absentee by mail, especially than was the case in previous elections. Our election officials did a really good job. Um, you know, there's never a perfect election, but there were no errors that were or 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 other problems like voting fraud that were significant enough to uh, affect the result. Um, and, you know, our, our judges, including state and federal judges, did their jobs and I think by and large did them very well of resolving the disputes that emerged in a timely way. So I think we have a lot to be proud of from our election officials around the country, including people who are affiliated with both of the major parties, as well as our courts, including judges across the ideological spectrum coming out of the 2020 election. And as you alluded to, we're recording this podcast on January 14th, so about a week removed from the, the riot at the U.S. Capitol and a week before inauguration. So we're in a very busy time here for, yeah. for election law and questions about election law. Do you see any changes to election law based on what's happened since the November election? You know, it's always so hard to know exactly what's going to happen. I do think that there are some things that we should look at. Uh, that includes the calendar for um, for the Electoral College, as well as the calendar for resolving disputes in some states. Um, you want to make sure you build in enough time to resolve these disputes. It's something I wrote an article on many years ago, and I, I think it remains true today that both at the federal level and in, in the states, there's there's reason to look at um, that calendar and to see whether some modifications should be made to it. Um, I also think that um, in the wake of this election, it's worth looking at the authority of secretaries of state and state legislatures. We saw some 
efforts in this most recent election cycle to influence secretaries of states or state legislatures. Um, and I think that is a very worrisome development. Look, every state has a process that's prescribed by law for resolving disputes, and that includes disputes over presidential elections. That process should be followed. It would be very dangerous if, you know, after the laws are in place, after an election has been conducted, a state legislature says, no, 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 we don't, we don't like the result, or we think this was problematic, and we're going to go back and just in appoint electors on our own, or if a secretary of state were to take it upon himself or herself to reverse the result of the election. So I, I worry about some of these possibilities. I worry about pressure being put on secretaries of state and state legislatures. One of the big continuing problems we have in this country is that the vast majority of our state election officials are party affiliated, right? Most of them are actually elected as candidates from one or the other major party. And, and that's a real problem because effectively the chief election official in most states is a player for one or the other of the teams. Here in Wisconsin, at least, we have a bipartisan um, election commission that runs our elections, which is better than most states. But, but I, I am worried about partisanship in election administration, especially at the state level. And I do think that that's something we should take a serious look at, as many people are starting to do. What do you most hope readers take away from these two recent publications? The first thing, which we spent a lot of time on in this discussion, Chris, the importance of lawyers and standing up for truth. We as lawyers and legal scholars, judges, law students, we have a really essential role to play. And it doesn't mean we can't disagree, that we can't disagree on what's true and what's false. In fact, it's essential that we do have reasoned disagreements over those things. But those those discussions have to be informed by evidence. Um, and, and I worry about the proliferation of falsehoods and reckless disregard for the truth that we see in some quarters, including on the left and the, and the right, if we want to be honest about this. So I think that's one of the clear messages um, from my work and, and the work of many other scholar, scholars it's to double down on truth. It's more important now than ever that we as lawyers do that, that we be we be standing up for truth and that we recognize that our legal system is both a bulwark for truth and a foundation component of our democratic process. The second thing that I would really, really emphasize is the need for us to look at our institutions, right, especially um, election administrators, the ones who are responsible for running our elections, and to consider changes that would give us nonpartisan, bipartisan uh, 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 electoral institutions, as most other countries have. Another piece I'm working on right now is on comparative election administration, looking at chief election authorities in the United States and around the world. We're somewhat of an outlier in having chief election officials that are so closely tied to one or the other of the major parties. And uh, I, um, I worry about the functional impartiality of our election authorities. I mean, I think they stood up to the pressure of this election, but if our democracy is going to survive and to flourish 
in the years, in the decades to come, I think it's going to be important that our electoral institutions get the attention they deserve and that we, including us as lawyers, work to improve the entities that are responsible for conducting our elections and ensuring that we have a result that can be trusted and ultimately that our democracy has the legitimacy it requires. I look forward to discussing that comparative election law article with you once that's out. We'll have you back on the podcast for that one for sure. Look forward to it, Chris. (laughs) Uh, Where can researchers find more of your work? Uh, Well, I've got an SSRN page, which uh, has that uh, draft of that most recent piece on comparative election administration. Uh, relies heavily on the works of one of our our emeritus professors, Neil Komisar, who's one of my intellectual heroes. Um, uh, So my work is on SSRN and and, uh, you can find it in various, various other places. I'll also sometimes be a guest blogger on my friend Rick Hassan's election law blog. So you can sometimes find my musings on on questions of the moment there as well. And we'll link to your SSRN page. We'll link to Professor Komisar's repository page. People can read more of his work. And of course, we'll link to all of your scholarship on our podcast page as well. Uh, Thank you very much for joining us today for a timely and fascinating look at election law, free speech, and democracy, Dean Tokaji. Uh, We've been discussing Dean Tokaji's recently published works, including Truth, Democracy, and the Limits of Law, published in the St. Louis University Law Journal, and hashtag two days out, 10 things to watch for on and after election day, a blog post posted on Professor Rick Hassan's election law blog. Both are specifically linked on our podcast page. For a complete listing of all of Dean Tokaji's work, you can visit the University of Wisconsin Law School repository. These links can also be found along with this podcast at wilawinaction.law.wisc.edu. Thank you all for listening. Be sure to check out our previous podcast where we discuss a wide range of legal topics and scholarship ranging from tribal law to COVID vaccinations and bioethics. You can subscribe to our podcast via the Apple iTunes Store or Stitcher or listen to our full archive at wilawinaction.law.wic.edu. Happy New Year and happy researching.